hey, can we all see me up here, like right here? Is that cool? I've been short all my life, and being tall just feels unnatural. So if I could stay down here, that'd be great. My name is Charlie. Thanks for having me, man. Um, let me talk about Nick for just two seconds. I've known Nick for, how long have you been married, dude? Ten years? Oh my gosh, I'm old. Anyway, so I've known Nick for ten years, uh, and you know, he's had jobs in ministry and out of ministry, and man, I love that dude, and I love that he's here right now, and I think he's really good at what he does, and I think the best thing he does is love people, so if you know Nick, give him a hug. If you don't know Nick, give him a hug. It's church. It's creepy, but it's awkward. He likes hugs? Fantastic, man. Cool. So hey, here's what, um, let me tell you a little bit about myself, and then we'll jump into some scriptures. So my name's Charlie. It is super awkward for me to be here, and I'm going to tell you why. I went to school at Carrollton Christian Academy, right? Storming Saints. Yeah, storm so hard we blew the building down. Anyway, so I went to school at CCA, and I also went to church at this church growing up, which is really weird for me. And you can ask some people who knew me then, and they would put money that I would not be here now. Yeah? Little bit different. Um, so tonight and this weekend, we're talking about the idea of nearness. And that's an interesting topic for me, because let me tell you about my family and about me. I'm not really okay with the idea of intimacy or the touching. I don't know how you guys do with the touching, but I'm just, my family, we do not hug, right? We really don't express how much we care for each other. We do it in other ways. One time in my life, my dad said he loved me, and it was really awkward, right? I know he did, but, but it was just, it's not really verbalized. When my dad dropped me off for college when I was 19 years old, 18 years old, there's all these kids around me, and they're weeping, and parents are weeping like they're sending their kids off to war. And, and literally, man, my dad dropped my stuff on the curb. I lived on the 18th floor of this building in Chicago. My dad dropped my stuff on the curb, stuck his hand out, and said, see you at Christmas, and got in his car and drove away. <laughs> Could you help me with a load? No, he was done. He said, I want the rush hour out of Chicago, it was 7 a.m. on Sunday, right? <laughs> this is my dad. We do not do well with the idea of intimacy in my life. So when Nick and I got together and kind of thought about the theme of nearness, I had to explore how I felt about it. And it's not a super masculine thing to, to think of a God that draws near, you know? And, and for me, it kind of makes me a little uncomfortable. But, but, but it goes well beyond just like God is felt. And that's what we're going to talk about this weekend. The nearness of God isn't just who God is sometimes, but it's a reflection of his character and how we're supposed to live. And so what I want to do tonight, um, before we kick off, man, is I think nearness is an incredibly personal subject, you know? And so when you teach, there are times when you teach, when I teach about joy or compassion or love, that I can pull stories from the news or from my friends or from my wife and talk about it. But when we talk about something like nearness, I don't know a way to talk about nearness and not share some of my story. Because nearness is intrinsically personal. It's about God drawing near to the very core of who we are. And so tonight, just so you guys get to know me a little bit, and, and hopefully I will you over the next couple days, I want to tell you a little bit of my story. It's not because I think it's better than anybody else's. It's just because I want to show you how I've seen God drawn near to even me who didn't really, wasn't really okay with the idea of God being near in the first place. Yeah? So let me pray for us before we get started. <clears throat> Dear God, I am thankful that we can be here today. 
I'm thankful that you are good. I am thankful that you are here with us. I'm thankful that you draw near. As we unpack some scriptures, I want to um, just pray, Spirit, that you come alongside of us and you encourage us and that you equip us and that you give us wisdom. Spirit, I pray that you teach us. Spirit, I pray that you change us so that when we leave this place, we know more about the character and nature of a God who draws near. In Christ, I pray. Amen. All right, so check it out. A little about me. I grew up around here. I went to this church. When I was in sixth grade, I felt like God wanted me to do this ministry thing full time. I was actually in chapel at CCA, and I remember where I was, what was happening when I felt like God said, hey, Chuck, I want you to go into ministry, which is really weird, by the way, right? You try explaining to somebody that God spoke to you. They're going to look at you like you're a little crazy. They're going to say, okay, and walk away, right? This is my life goal. So as time progressed, uh, sixth grade to seventh grade, seventh grade to eighth grade, eighth grade to high school, and I decided that I didn't really like God much anymore. Had some bumpy roads with churches, and uh, it wasn't my favorite place to be, didn't feel welcomed, kind of got away from that, right? So then my senior year rolls around, and I said, well, I'm pretty stubborn. So I said, God, if you still want me to do ministry, then I'll apply to some places. One of the places I applied to was a school named Moody Bible Institute. It's in Chicago. I didn't know much about it. I felt, again, like God wanted me to go there. And so I applied, and my guidance counselor, I remember this, sat me down in her office. And I had good grades. I really did. And I was really, like, well-versed in all the extracurriculars. And she sat me down and said, you're never going to get in there. They want people who love God. Right? And I said, awesome. She said, you should look at Texas or A&M. Right? And I said, okay, appreciate you. Uh, but I'm stubborn, so that just gave me more fuel for the fire to go to Moody. And it turns out I got in. And so I went to Chicago. I went to Moody Bible Institute, and I started this whole new chapter of, hey, I'm going to do this ministry thing. I was saved, and I knew God, and I knew some of the scriptures, and I went up there, and when I got there, it started, man, what I'd probably still say is the worst two or three years of my life. I got to Moody, and it's this place where I thought that God wanted me. I knew that God wanted me, you know? And when you go places that you know that God wants you, you expect it to be good, or life-giving, or edifying, or encouraging. None of that happened. My first three weeks there, I had eight or nine people stop me and tell me I didn't belong there and I should leave. Right? This is moody. They didn't even know me, man. I looked different, and I didn't realize I was walking into the homeschooled, pleated pants capital of the Midwest. But that doesn't matter. Right? I had no idea, but that, that doesn't matter, man. I walked in, and I had really long hair, and I didn't wear the pleated things, and people looked at me, you know, like I was a Democrat at Moody. And so it was really awkward for me to go there. But even though I was there, I had people tell me over and over, you should leave. Over and over, you, shouldn't, you just don't fit in here. I stopped. I had no friends. None. I'm a people person. It got so bad. My, man, it was right at the end of my first semester, um, I couldn't really do it much anymore. And, and just to tell you how old I am, this is when Facebook started, like year number one, people, right? I paved the road for all of your parents. I'm <laughs> year number one. And I saw all the pictures of my friends having good times at, at real colleges, you know, and joining fraternities, which I always thought I was going to be in, and doing all this stuff. And I, I just couldn't really take it anymore. And I'd, man, I prayed, you know? I prayed and I prayed and I prayed, and nothing happened. Nobody liked me. It got worse. And I tried, and it got worse. And I sat in my room one morning, and I decided at Moody that I was out. I was out on God. I was out on ministry. I was out on Moody. Man, it was over. Because it couldn't be this hard. 
because if God wanted me here, I wouldn't do this alone. And there it is. The worst kind of feeling is aloneness. Not, not aloneness like I need to shut myself in my room, aloneness, but utterly desperate, I have nobody telling me there's hope, aloneness. I was in the middle of Moody Bible Institute and I couldn't find God with two hands and a flashlight, you know? And I'm willing to bet, man, I'm willing to bet that we've had those moments. Where was a God who promised me that he was going to draw near then? So I sat and I waited. And I packed my bags and I looked online and I was about 15 minutes from getting a train to O'Hare and flying home. To live with my buddy and go to SMU, you know? That hurt me for a long time. And it's kind of the genesis of my journey in finding out the nearness of God. And so today we're going to look at a couple stories in the scriptures. If you have a Bible, um, we're going to be in there a lot today. Go to Genesis chapter 16. And I want to tell you real quick as you're turning there why I love scripture. Um, a lot of reasons, but a lot of, one of the reasons why I think it's really credible is because the scriptures don't tell a fairy tale story, you know? So if I'm devising a religion and I want to write a religious text, if I am just making it up on my own, I'm going to make it sound as awesome as possible, right? So my friends are now married and, and they're starting to pop out the babies, which I think is an awesome decision for them. And, <laughs> and as they pop out babies, they start sending us these things like Christmas cards, right? It's what you do when you have a kid. I had like eight this year. And every time I get a Christmas card... I never read on these Christmas cards, hey, little Emma's six months old, she still looks kind of awkward, and is kind of a blob, right? I never read, she's not really that attractive yet, but we're hopeful, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> never once. I always read in all of these things, Emma is the most adorable girl. The other day, she looked up, you know, like she's Einstein, you know what I'm talking about? So here's the deal. If I'm painting a picture of this utopia that I want people to buy into, like family Christmas cards, I'm making it sound awesome, Right? And family Christmas cards are a simple advertising campaign for why my family's better than yours, yeah? So when we read scripture, though, it's, it's just not that way. And sometimes, sometimes, especially in children's church, we teach stories of, of white Jesus, and we teach stories of happy people. Um, and happy times are there, and rescue is there, but sometimes we dive into the middle of brokenness. And the fact that God would allow that, man, it's real people and it's real lives. And so tonight, we're going to look at the story of a broken family. It starts with a guy named Abram. We're in chapter 16, verse 1. Let's read for a couple verses. <coughs> it says, Now Sarai, it's his wife, had borne him no children, and he had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Let's stop there real quick. That's a really big deal. At this point, Abram is 86 years old, right? That is an old, old man. He had no kids. In that day, in that time, if you didn't have kids, it was a divine reflection that God didn't like you. And, and furthermore, they were in an agrarian society, right? Which means that they ate the stuff that they grew. And so if you didn't have kids, who does the work? Who does the chores? Kids literally were your income, they were your sustenance, they were your retirement, they were everything. And if you didn't have kids, not only did people think that God hated me, but they thought, man, how am I going to survive in this world? And that's if you're a dude. If you're a woman, it was even worse. One theologian said, and I liked what he said about it, I think I've got a quote up there for you guys. Um, he said that 
It was a serious matter for a man to be childless in the ancient world, for it left him without an heir, but it was even more calamitous for a woman. To have a great brood of children was the mark of success as a wife. To have none was in ignominious failure, which means that God hated you. So they're 86 years old and they don't have kids yet. Big, big deal. This is like a hopeless situation, you know, that we're diving into. And so they're talking like married people talk. Let's go to verse 2. The end of it says, he says, hey, God has prevented me from having children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain an heir through her. All right, so I don't know if we know what that means, but when it says in the scriptures, please go into my maid, that's the way that they make the babies. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know if we've read that part before, but... Oh, you got it? Thank God. All right, so... <laughs> all right, woo, we got one. I'm not going to ask how. Anyway, so we... we, we you got you to picture this, man. See, you have a husband and a wife, and the wife can't have a kid. And so she looks at her husband, and she says, look at my, you know, 20-something-year-old maid. Maybe you guys can, you know, do the deed, right? Y'all can hit it up. Oh, all right. <laughs> so literally. And, and, and here's what I think is kind of crazy. That would never, ever, ever happen. That would never happen in our society, not even in a million years. And here's what we have to know and understand sometimes is that God works through societal norms here and there, right? He works through the things that culture uses and uses them for his good because he's bigger than cultures. So we have to know that going in. Let's keep reading real quick. He says in verse 3, sorry, at the end of verse 2, and Abram listened to the voice of his wife. After Abram lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarah took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And we saw that, um, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress despised her in her sight. All right, so we've got to deal with something real quick because I think it's important. I've read through this a bunch of times and I've talked to people about this passage. And sometimes we can read through this and say, hey, look, God is for polygamy, you know? He uses it here. But let's talk about the nature of Scripture for two minutes. Um, it's a story and it's a narrative. And so as a narrative, it's not trying to all the time with every sentence relate absolute truth, right? That's not the point of this text. So when I tell you a story about my dad dropping me off, the point of that story was to show that we don't do affection, not to show that my dad was a callous man. He was not. And to infer one from the story is taking that out of context. So when we read scriptures like this where... God uses cultures, times, and places, and he doesn't come down on Abram right there and say, I can't believe you're an evil sinner. How could you do that? When, when he doesn't do that, that's not the point of the story, right? And actually, what you have to look at is always the response to that kind of stuff in Scripture. Uh, one author said it really well. He said, a thousand volumes written against polygamy would not lead to a clearer or fuller conviction of the evils that practice in the story under review. What he's saying is, if you want to know God's stance on polygamy, look at every time it happens in Scripture, and it never has a happy ending, right? So just because we see it doesn't mean God's for it. So here's the story, man. We got Abraham, we got Sarah. We got some unbelief happening because God had promised him a kid, and it didn't happen after 10 years, and he's 86 now, and it's not going down. It's a tough place to be. So we say, hey, why don't we take matters into our own hands? So they had a kid with somebody else because they didn't trust God. And what we see out of these two characters is we see just kind of the textbook definition of immaturity. Um, And I'm going to define immaturity tonight. It's defined as a lot of things, but I like this. 
Immaturity is when our unmet expectations of God change our idea of God's character. So what that means is, um, I, I used to teach a middle school group, and we did something like this, and there was one year when the winners of this game got ice cream, right? And we ran out of ice cream. I didn't have ice cream for this girl, and she was this sixth grader who was adorable, big blue eyes, and she, you know, every time she'd come in, she'd give me a hug, and she'd be like, I just think you're great, and I'd say, thank you, melt your heart, you know what I'm saying? And I ran out of ice cream before she got any. She looked at me and said she wished I would die, right? I'm, I'm dead serious. And I looked at this little girl, and I mean, I laughed, because come on, what, are you going to do it? Anyway, so, <laughs> literally, though, this, this girl went from, I love you, I love you, I love you, to just because she didn't get ice cream, I hate you. And when you think about it, that's what children do. If they don't get their way, they absolutely change their disposition towards the person that didn't give them what they wanted, right? That's a kid. That's why four-year-olds cry when they don't get chicken nuggets from McDonald's, right? I cry when you give me chicken nuggets from McDonald's. Big difference in maturity, you know? And so literally what happens is when we believe God for things and he doesn't show up, when God leaves us out there and we can't see why, when I'm sitting on the floor of my dorm and moody, not understanding why God would make this so hard or leave me alone in the place that I thought he wanted me, I stop trusting in God, and it changes my opinion of who he is. No longer is God as faithful as he used to be. I have to fix it. No longer does God love me as much as he did. I have to fix it. And we see immaturity creep up. And here's the deal. If you kind of ever want to see where your immaturities are at times, ask the question. If God took something away or if God didn't give you what you wanted, when and how you wanted it, how are your affections towards God changed? How would you trust less? How would you adore more? How would you not love as deeply? Because God works outside of our expectations and time for everything. And that's what's happening here, right? You this crazy story of immaturity abounding. And I don't blame them. It had been 10 years. I'm not calling these guys kids. They waited way longer than I would have. And so what happens, um, it's pretty simple. It's a story that we have all probably seen in movies. The one woman has a kid for the other woman. And guess what happens? They don't play nice in the end, Right? So the text continues, and Hagar has the kid and starts acting like she's better than Sarai, Abraham's wife. Sarai doesn't like that. She blames Abraham. She blames Abram, and she says, how could you do this? And Abram said, man, I, didn't, I, I just did what you wanted me to do, and here's the deal. If you get in a fight with your wife, you always lose. And so that wasn't going well for him, right? And so look down real quick at the end of verse 6. It says, behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarah treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. All right, you got to understand kind of what's happening here. So again, in the ancient world, community was life, man. Kids were life. Couldn't live in a studio apartment in Jerusalem by yourself, right? Hit Chick-fil-A whenever you wanted, like freedom. That didn't happen. In that culture, especially if you were a woman, especially if you were a woman, you needed men to care for you, men to protect you, and men to give you food. And if you had none of that, you died. So when it says in the text, at that last little phrase, Sarah treated her harshly and she fled, how bad would it, must it have had to be, to be in that situation for a six-month you know, woman that's preggers to run away? from life how bad was it because she knew like I know like we're learning that if she ran it was 
probably death. <laughs> That's bad. And so she runs away from the source of her life. And as she does so, look in the next couple of verses. Um, verse 7. Now an angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by a spring on the way to Shur. Skip down to verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress. Submit yourself to her authority. I will greatly multiply your descendants, the Lord says, so that they will be too many to count. A couple things I love about this passage is verse 7 when it says, The angel of the Lord saw her. That's huge, man. She's in the wilderness, which is kind of this unknown, uncharted place of big question markness. And God found her there. Huge statement. And then he made her a promise. And he said, hey, because kids were such a big deal, I'm going to give you so many of them. It's a sign of prosperity and care, right? And abundance. And the last person that thought that she was going to get that was the Egyptian slave girl who had somebody else's kid in her belly that was running. And my favorite part of this whole story, kind of what we're building to, is go to verse 13. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God who sees me. I love that phrase. So in the Old Testament, there are names for God, right? There's about 18 of them-ish, 18 to 20 um, names for God. And every single time, a name for God reflects the character of God, a different kind of character. My grandmother growing up, she had all of her grandchildren had a picture on a wall, and it said their name, and then underneath it, it said what their name meant, right? So I have a twin brother, and he is, well, has always been about 25% bigger than me, like from birth, right? I was four pounds when I came out. He was five pounds, you know, adorable little, little puppies. Anyway, and um, as we grew up, that never really changed. My twin brother is 6'3", blonde hair and blue eyes, always been bigger than me. My dad was short like I was, but he at one point skyrocketed into manhood that just completely missed my grandmother's name on my plaque in her living room said Charles, and then underneath it it said strong and manly. <laughs> it never really happened, but I thought it would. Every time I looked at that plaque, I'd be like, all right, I got this coming, you know? I'm undersized, I'm underweight, my brothers are bigger than me, but I'd be like, I got this, I'm going to be strong and manly, you know? That was me as a kid. And so here's the beautiful thing, we have this we still see it sometimes. Names reflect people. But in the Bible, they really, really did. You called kid things, kids things based upon their characteristics they displayed. And same thing with God. When it says, you are a God who sees me, the Hebrew there, Old Testament's written in it, the Hebrew there has one name for God. It's a proper name. It's El Royi. It literally means the God who sees. And to me, it's really, really cool. It's really cool to know that God is there and that God just doesn't, like, you know, brush over some of us that don't matter, but, but literally sees me. And as we kind of unpack the idea of nearness and talk about nearness, one of the things I want to focus on at the beginning um, is just the simple fact that if we're going to talk about God being near, if we're going to talk about what that looks like, we have to start with a God who sees us right where we are. We have to believe that God sees us right we are and that that to me sometimes i forget quickly it's a beautiful idea what what hager's going through in the middle of this lost broken hopelessness disparity man she calls out to a god who saw her and says oh my goodness this is hopeful because they didn't have a whole lot of that to begin with so that's kid one flip over to genesis 22 for me genesis 22 is the story of ishmael's brother ishmael was the kid that hagar was carrying around 
in her belly, right? Genesis 22, it's one of those stories we tell in children's church, and it's incredibly gruesome, but we don't teach it that way. Um, and, and what happens is, so they finally had a kid about 10, 12 years later. Abraham was 100, Abram was 100 years old, and he finally popped out a kid, and they called it Isaac, right? So here's the deal. Could you imagine how anticipated that kid was? We got any, we got any only kids in this room? Anybody an only kid? All right. Anybody not an only kid? That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Here's what you need to do. And my parents, you know, we didn't have the digital cameras back then. We had the Polaroid cameras that are now cool again, just like me. So we had the um, <laughs> Polaroid cameras. And if you look at, like, the albums, well, I'm, my little brother is more loved, like every little sibling is, right? But... The first kid probably has three or four times the amount of pictures of than second, third, and fourth, and fifth, and sixth. And if you have more than that, you're a Duggar kid. But anyway, we have all, all of these working out. And it's the same thing. It's parents really look forward to that first kid. It's monumental, right? Now we have all these. Do you guys know what gender reveal parties are? Yeah, they're ridiculous. Let me bite do a cupcake and see the gender of my baby, you know? To me, I don't understand why any part of that is good. It's like, oh, boy, you know I mean? That is not okay to me, but that's a whole other subject, right? We, we look forward. I want to be a baker and, like, dye it red one time and see what happens. Um, yeah, that'd be awesome. Or, like, green, like, turquoise. Like, I don't know. Um, anyway, it's a really masculine girl. Anyway, so uh, the hope of this kid is pretty, is pretty amazing. So let's see what happens in this one. Go to verse 1, chapter 22. Now it came about after those things that, a- that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. It's this beautiful response you get, not just like when your mom calls your name from your room and you're like, yeah, you know. It's this posture of when God says, hey, you say, hey, here I am. Like, I'm ready to do something for you, you know. Kind of like when a soldier says, I'm here to their sergeant. Verse 2, he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you've loved, Isaac, and go to the land... Um, of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. <laughs> that is a crazy sentence. Imagine how loved this kid was, the anticipation of this kid coming into this world. He was 100 years old when it happened. About 15 years later-ish, God says, go kill him. You know? And, and we get into this, this story, and um, God is kind of testing Abraham a little bit. And, and I want to take a minute and talk about that for a sec because sometimes we, we, we create this picture of a God who tests us all the time. He like finds our weakest point and then pries on it like a bad parent does. He'd be like, you're stronger because of it like my dad did. You know, if, if you're not dead, you're, you're better for it. That's kind of what my dad used to say all the time in sports, right? Walk it off, rub some dirt on it. We think, we think God's like that. And what we don't see in that moment is the compassion of God. And so... Um, I think that God does test and set things our way, but it's not always because God's trying to make us stronger through being mean, and I don't think that's what he's doing here. I think that the compassion of God is wound within the idea of God making us stronger, and they can happen at the same time because there's a bigger picture, right? Uh, Rob Bell, he's one of my favorite authors, uh, he said this about conflict and stories. He said, somehow we realize that the greatest stories are told in conflict but we're unwilling to embrace the potential of greatness of the story we're actually in. It means we don't recognize the conflict in our stories as being good, but we see conflict in other stories as being great for them. And he says at the end of that, we think God is unjust rather than a master storyteller. And I love that. 
So that ice cream story I told you, I left some things out because I'm manipulative. Um, mostly what happened was we, there was this conference and I was, I was teaching through Jonah, right? And Jonah is a fantastic study of the fairness of God and what the God's fairness is and is God fair? And if he's not, is that okay, right? And so what actually happened was we didn't run out of ice cream. There was a big game at the beginning and uh, their group won and I promised them ice cream and then I lied. So <laughs> it was a little different. Um, so this, and actually I didn't just lie. I gave ice cream to everybody else in the group, right? So like 80 kids had ice cream except the five that won. And uh, so, you know, I was a little afraid she was going to stab me with a popsicle stick. But um, what actually, what we were trying to do in that moment was we referenced that over and over again to go back at the end of the weekend and say, hey, hold on a second. Did you earn that ice cream or was it given to you? So if you don't get any, is that not fair? Right? We were telling the story. So the point of the conflict in that was to say, hey, there's a bigger story going on around you. And just because I didn't give you ice cream doesn't mean I don't love you. It has a purpose in your life and in the life of those in your life, right? So we see that kind of happening and just going on with Isaac. So let's keep reading. So Abraham rose early in the morning, which baffles me. Hey, go kill your firstborn kid, the kid that you love, and he gets up early to do it. I would sleep in and be like, I'm kind of sore today, big guy. Like, how's tomorrow and 1130 work? Good? Anyway, so he rose, he got on his donkey, and he took two young men with him, and Isaac, his son, he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. He said to his young son, stay here with the donkey and the lad and I'll go over there and we will worship and return to you. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering. He laid it on the back of his son and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. It's a, three, it's a 50 mile journey from where they were to this mountain. They're walking side by side. Abraham with the weight of this is going to happen to my kid. <laughs> That's a long walk, you know? That's a long, shameful, guilt-ridden, conflicted, tension-mounting walk. My favorite verse, actually, this whole narrative, pretty much, is the next one. It says, after, Abraham said, let's go worship, took a knife and took fire and took wood. And Isaac knew what was going to happen. He was probably 13. It says at the end of that verse, so the two of them walked on together. Love that phrase. I love that phrase because what I think about when I think of that phrase is that Isaac's old enough to start piecing things together. He'd sacrificed before. It's what they did to show submissiveness to God. And, and he gets all this stuff and usually whenever you sacrifice you take something to sacrifice, right? You take a ram or you take a calf or you take something. They didn't have that. They start walking. For three days they walk, they walk, they walk. So they get there. At this point, Isaac has to be, I mean, has to be questioning what's happening, Dad. Are you awkward? Why aren't you talking? And they walked on. Abraham's 115-ish years old, and Isaac's 13, 14. He could probably take his dad at this point, you know? There's just trust there. So if, if immaturity is a lack of trust when we don't feel like God delivers on our expectations... Maturity then is simply seen as a really cool thing. It's faith in the character and the promises of God in spite of situation or circumstance. No matter what's happening around me, God's still God and I trust that. Even when we're on the third day of walking and I don't see another out. So they keep walking. Abraham keeps walking with his kid. I would absolutely say no to this proposition. Some people think, oh, well, Abraham knew God was going to deliver. I, I really don't, actually. I think it goes against the, the nature of this narrative. Let's keep reading. You'll figure out why. Go to verse 9. 
Then they came to the place of God, which he had told them. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. And he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. That to me is incredibly powerful. He says, son, build the altar. Son, get on the altar. He knew what was happening with the altar. He said, son, stretch out your hand. Let me tie you down. I cannot imagine this was a peaceful process, right? And if you're a father or you love somebody at all and somebody cries out for help and you don't help them, it crushes you. It crushes you. And he binds him and then he takes the knife and he raises it to kill his kid that he loved. Love was not void of this situation. And as he did that, God stepped in. I think here's the purpose of why God did all this. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. He said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am again. Same phrase as before. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing because now I know that you fear me for you've not withheld your son from me. And then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went up and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Beautiful picture of what Christ did for us there. Verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it's said to be called today. I love this on a lot of levels. Um, that same phrase when he says he called this place the Lord will provide is another name of God, not a phrase. It's Jehovah Jireh. Names reflect character. Known, exposed character. And the first one was a God who sees and this one is Jehovah Jireh. God provides. What, what I love about this story is we have brokenness all around us, you know? In people and in families. And in the middle of those two kids that are pretty broken, what we find is a message of the character of God who sees us and who provides for us. So, go back to my story a little bit. Um, I'm at Moody, and I'm sitting there, and I'm about to leave, and I get online and check my email again, and there's an email from this woman, Dana, and I went to CCA, and we had, probably my favorite person at CCA, outside of Rachel Robinson, um, was a woman, yeah, 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 just take the compliment, um, was... <laughs> A woman by the name of Donna McWilliams. Um, oh, did you know Donna? Dude, what an awesome woman. I wasn't really, well, that's kind of an understatement. And nowhere in this known universe was I walking with the Lord in high school. And Donna loved me, right? Like my Bible teachers wrote me off. My Bible teachers tried to find ways to get me kicked out of CCA. Donna did not. Donna loved me, always told me, like, Charlie, you're better than this, like, over and over and over again, when, believe me, those people had given up in my world, you know? Donna was the one that said, hey, I'm praying for you all the time, and I'd laugh, and she'd say, I am, God is good, you know? And she would do her whole little high chuckle thing, it was gorgeous, right? So I got an email that morning from Donna's sister. Donna's sister didn't really know me very well, but did. She came to all the CCA sports, and I played those. And she came to the musicals, and I was in those. And she came to the choir concerts, and I did a little of that, right? So she knew who I was. And Donna's sister that morning, I guess, sent Donna an email um, and said, Hey, I need Charlie's email address. And so she gave it to her. And I got an email from Dana that said, I, I know we've never really talked before, and I know that you don't really know who I am all the way. But I got sent this devotional this morning, and God just told me that I needed to send it to you, right? And this devotional was, I opened it up, and all of a sudden, it's a story of Daniel in the lion's den, and it was really cool. I'm never going to forget this moment, man. I'm about to leave 
moody and ministry and the tag of this story was all about how God puts people in places they don't think they belong to grow them because Daniel's in the middle of a den of lions and he's just following God and how would he ever think that that's where following God would lead him? It was, it was this really cool devotional that was three paragraphs long about how God puts us in those places but it doesn't mean he's not present. It was pretty great. I mean, I sat there and sat there and stared at the screen, and I thought, I have to stay here now, you know? And I was uh, <laughs> a little sad, but, I mean, absolutely blown away. Blown away by God. And then I, I stayed and didn't get much better for about a year. I had five roommates in four semesters. Um, not because I'm a bad roommate, but because the people that I make friends with got kicked out of Moody and didn't stay. And so they kept leaving me. And... Uh, and then Rach and I actually know a kid named Tyler Savage, who is my best friend. And, uh, oh, yeah, man, we have, like, the same friends. Oh, it's your cousin. All right, so, yeah, awesome. Um, family. So Ty, uh, Ty said, hey, I think God's calling me to ministry, and I think I'm going to come to Moody. And I said, you should. It's amazing. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I told you, I'm manipulating. So um, long story short, after about two years, he came to Moody, and we lived together for two years. And everything that he gave me, I needed to stay there. My parents still call him the one that saved my life. Here's what I love about, about the story of Isaac and Ishmael and mine at Moody. Um, I think as we walk with God, as we get older, whether we follow God or not, whether we believe in God or not, there are times when we're going to believe that God isn't present, that God isn't near. Because expectations go unmet. <laughs> because he doesn't act in the ways that we thought he would. Because life is freaking hard sometimes. It was for me. And it's in those moments where we have an opportunity, man, where we say, well, God isn't around me. He isn't present. He doesn't see me. He doesn't know me. And, and if I'm here and he hasn't changed it, he cannot care for me. But what we see through the scriptures is pretty much that that God doesn't have a choice in seeing and caring for people because it is his character, because it's the name that people have given him through centuries, generations and generations. He's a God that sees you and cares. Kind of the big picture for tonight, man, is it's really easy to go unnoticed, even by God. But he is a God who sees you and he's actively providing for his people. And if we're going to sit here and talk about the nearness of God, if we're going to sit here and talk about a God that comes alongside of us and doesn't stay out there, we have to understand that it starts with our belief that he knows where you are right now. Goods, bads, and in-between. He sees where you're at, and he's not okay with you being in places of need. He will provide. And that might not be now, and it might be in a year or two years, or it might be tomorrow. But here's the character of the God that I see in Scripture and in my own life. He sees, he cares, and he provides over and over and over again. And if we're going to talk about a God who draws near, we need to know that he knows us. If we're going to talk about how God's nearness changes things, we need to know that no matter how bad it is or how much you don't like him, he sees you. You might be running, but he says, I see you, and I will provide, because it's who I am. So as we move forward in this night, as we move forward in this weekend and I, I pray that we can ask that question <laughs> where is God seeing me now what does that look like how is he providing for me because I think a lot of times we just miss those and if God is near then God also has to know and provide and 
if we start asking those questions, we might be able to see God acting in our world and in our lives. Because that first six months at Moody that I was there that was awful, I guarantee you he was still active because his character tells me that he was. I call you in a maturity to know that God is faithful even when it doesn't seem like he is. Maybe we can start tonight with worship stations or whatever we're going to do next, man. Maybe we can start asking the question, how is God seeing me now and how is he providing? Because that's not an if statement. It's who he is. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful. Um, I'm just thankful that you've looked out for me like I know you have for everybody in here. I, I pray that as we continue in this weekend and this night that you show us those moments, that you walk us through those times when you've been with us, even if we missed it, God. I pray that in those times of frustration where we might not know that you see us, that you show it to us and give us a love for you. I pray that you use people to speak into our lives, to show us that you're active. I pray this weekend is one that, that reminds us that you are here and that you are providing. I pray that it's something that we might know and not question, even when it's not seen. I call us in a maturity spirit. I pray that you speak to us. God is near and because of that we believe in all the stuff that he